0: Welcome to another episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman. And today I've got Pat Gallagher along with Ted Robinson. And, and let me just start by saying, uh, Pat, it's kind of hard to believe we've been doing this for over nine months now. Uh, time is flying. And we are beyond excited to have an actual uh, broadcaster on our podcast today. We've, we've had Jim Cozumore from NBC Sports. Uh, back on in March, but extremely excited to have Ted on today to talk about uh, a whole slew of things within his career uh, on the mic and and in front of the television. Uh, but Pat, you know him a lot better than I do, so I'll let you uh, introduce Ted, and and we'll go from there.
1: Okay, great. This is great with two knuckleheads actually interviewing a real a real broadcaster. I mean, this is <laughs> this is fantastic, and you know Ted Ted you know, full disclosure, Ted and I have been friends for, God, for a long time. We were colleagues for a long time with the Giants. And, um, and Ted, you know, really wanted to talk about, you know, sort of, sort of your start, who you listened to as a kid, you know, when you sort of said, you know what, I want to be a broadcaster. And, <laughs> and, and, and all, the, all your stops along the way because your career is amazing. You, you know, you broadcast pretty much every sport, every major sport, um, maybe there 's some sports that you haven 't done that you might like to do, but you 've done the olympics you 've done tennis you 've done the big the big guys baseball basketball football hockey and um, and you 've been doing it for a long time at the, at the highest possible levels so um, so we 'll sort of get into it and teddy uh, i 'll call you teddy because you 're my friend but when you uh, when you started growing up in New York, I mean when was it that you sort of said you know, maybe, maybe this is something for me. Yeah. Well, Pat, thanks for having me,
2: Jake. It's a pleasure to meet you via the, this podcast and, uh, and we'll get to the fact there actually is a front office hook for me. I'm not just I know before. there is. No, so, no, so, no. so, so so we'll, we'll get to that. But, you know, I grew up in, in and around New York city uh, and I was just a sports knucklehead. Um, if I wasn't playing something when I was a kid and I grew up in the New York sandlot era, so it was sandlot baseball and. Uh, you know, we played touch football on cement, and you know, I mean, because that's what you did in the in city environment. Stickball and st- oh, stick, oh, stickball was huge. Um Some wiffle ball when we could get to a grass field. You know, playground basketball with chain nets, all that kind of stuff. So, if I wasn't doing that, though, I was watching games, and and really, I I, lo- I gravitated to announcers when I was young, and Marv Albert was the guy. Anybody from my age down, probably another twenty years. Uh, Grew up with Marv, and I grew up with Marv on radio, which is, I was the front end of this group, and Marv was doing the Knicks and the Rangers on radio when I was a kid, only home games. They didn't travel, but he would do Knick games at Madison Square Garden, Ranger games at Madison Square Garden, then eventually he would drive to the NBC uh, TV station in New York and do the 11 o'clock sports after the game, which you could pull off back then. But that was the hook. And then the Mets were my baseball team because my dad was at Emmits Field the night my mother went into labor with me the last year at the Dodgers in Brooklyn. So the Yankees were just forbidden. My dad never took me to a Yankee game, ever. He took me to Yankee Stadium (laughs) once when I was a kid, and it was for a New York Giants football game. He refused to go see the Yankees. So by the time I was of age, the Mets were the team. Shea Stadium was there. So I grew up a Mets fan. So that meant Lindsey Nelson, Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner and so then the the end of the story becomes I wanted to play like every kid and by the time I got into high school I went to a pretty good high school where sports were competitive so the elimination process already started and then what happens I'm playing football and it was actually outside of the practice structure and I was goofing around and did something stupid and broke my ankle in four places Mm. and so that was it. That was I was I had to get ho- actually get homeschooled most of my junior year because I was in plaster. But that was the a- absolutely a blessing at the end because it accelerated
1: moving on from that. Okay, I'm not gonna play for a living. I gotta find something else. And this was the next best thing. And so it and it, it what a great background. And then you and then you went to Notre Dame. I mean, Notre mm-hmm. Dame is uh uh, you know, talk a little bit about your Notre Dame career because you actually did some broadcasting when you were in college, right? Is that where you oh, started? Well, that's why. I, that's why I went to Notre Dame. Um, I was uh, set to
2: go to North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, that was a, back in my year. there was a huge pipeline of kids from New York to North Carolina. Yeah, and Chapel Hill was beautiful. Great campus. Everything about it was beautiful. And I was swayed. My father put me on my first airplane flight in my life when I was 17. We flew from New York to Notre Dame. He said, you just want you want to see it before you make your final decision. And I was on campus 15 minutes. Of that. Was your dad an alum? I
1: mean, did no, you have any connection. No,
2: I had an uncle that graduated, huh. but that was it. But, you know, you're you're Irish Catholics from New York. It wasn't unusual to be a Notre Dame fan.
1: Mm-hmm. And my
2: dad did not go there, but um, it, it was just. He was just, he was very, my dad was very smart in a couple of ways we could talk about, but that was one. He said, I just want you to see Notre Dame before you make your final call. And literally 15 minutes on campus, that was it. And Notre Dame was not a very good liberal arts school when I went there. It did, though, have a student-run radio station, and you didn't have to stand in line to be on. And that was the part that attracted me to me. I was on the air on the student radio station about the fourth day I was on campus, on the oh, air. Wow! And you go to these other schools, and everyone... In my view, in my world, they'll come on and talk about Syracuse, Syracuse, Syracuse. And, you know, that's great. That works for certain people. Um, but you don't have to do that. Uh, you, and, and you don't have to go to a factory. And Syracuse is a, in broadcasting. It's just a factory. And you have to compete and stand in line and wait your turn. And I wasn't interested in any of that because I wasn't good enough to play. So I said, I don't want to have to wait to broadcast. I want to get on the air and learn how to do it. Because there is no question, guys, in my mind, my business is no different than acting. You can't learn it in a classroom. You learn it by doing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I could do it starting literally, I think the fourth day I was on campus, I was at the radio station trying, and they put me on the air the next day doing a sportscast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, so what were you, what were you, what was the, uh, which sports were you? Uh, broadcasting at, in, at the college level. So the, uh, the the beauty
2: of our radio station, and actually at the time, a lot of really good uh, talent. Notre Dame doesn't have this reputation, but a lot of good broadcasters came out of there. Uh, one of the guys that broke me in was Steve Garagio, one of Joe's sons. Oh, yeah. And Steve went on to have a good TV career in Michigan. Um, Joe Donnelly, who was just served as a United States Senator from Indiana was a year ahead of me. And he was, he did some basketball, we did probably half a dozen basketball games together. Joe didn't pursue it as a career. He went into law and then politics. Um, but I want up. the, the, the measure was you could do, we did home games in three sports. We did football, basketball, and hockey, and you did home games in all of them. And then by the time I was a junior was my first real break, uh, for a, a series of consequences the local south bend radio station that was broadcasting notre dame hockey lost its announcer its announcer took a big time job in the pros and two one of two occasions that my boss because by that time i was also working for the sports information office as a student assistant covering Mm -hmm. doing all the grunt work and doing a lot of swimming work but anyway he called the radio station and said, look, I've got this kid who works in my office. He's a junior, he also is on the radio station. He's pretty good, he can do the hockey for you." So I got hired to do Notre Dame hockey my junior year for a, a real radio station in South Bend. I paid $25 a game, which back then was, you know that was beer money for two months. <laughs> and, and, and I did that junior and senior year. So I actually was, you know, had about 50 games of actual professional tape
1: of hockey by the time I graduated. Wow. So what was your first, like, real job, your first real, say, you said you had some front office experience, you yeah. had that in hockey, yeah. and, you, you know, I assume that you probably had, wore a bunch of different hats when you had that, when you're, right. uh you know, like a lot of us did when we started in the business. Yeah, so this is a good story, and this is what I think a lot of, um,
2: this, get and Jake, I'm sure your eyes glaze over when you hear this, this is, gets into history 101, the way we used to do things, <laughs> right? Yeah. I've listened to your Pods before, and I know some of this, so I I qualify my comments with I understand it doesn't work this way today. But (laughs) what it did was, uh, I was a caddy every summer of my adolescence, my teen years. I was Noonan from Caddyshack. That's exactly who I was. I was the kid that dressed neatly and cleanly and walked in the caddy yard and was polite to people and got a lot of loops because of it. That's awesome. But it was a great experience because, trust me, Caddyshack was not far off. There was not a whole lot of exaggeration in that movie.
0: Um, there's still caddies well then, today, I, Ted. There's still, there's definitely, I'm sorry? There's definitely still caddies today. Oh. <laughs>
2: so, um, oh, and listen, Jake, you'll love this. I watched a lot of guys. I learned a lot about how to cheat on the golf course. As a caddy. <laughs> I can't tell you how many guys would cheat to win $5 on a Saturday round. And it was just, it was an eye opening experience. But um, so, anyway, uh, by the time I was a sophomore in college, my dad again said, Why don't you try to do something that, like, relates to what you really want to do. So I answered a blind newspaper ad. Back in the day, we had newspapers from Newsday, the huge newspaper on Long Island. I answered a blind newspaper ad that was just advertising a potential sports summer job. Well, it turned out that job was to sell season tickets for the New York Islanders and the New York Nets basketball and hockey teams that were at the time still owned by the same man. They were both on Long Island. The Nassau Coliseum had been built and opened, and the Nets and the Islanders were. And I answered the end and I got the job. I got hired in the summer between my sophomore and junior years of college to be a commission only salesperson for these two teams. And the the truth was they gave me a desk and they gave me two other things. They gave me a telephone and the yellow pages. That was it. Cold call. <laughs> and the, the blessing of this, and again, one of the many things in life that I was blessed by, the third day I was sitting in the office in Cara Place, Long Island, the third day I was there, the Nets were accepted into the NBA. And I, did, I obviously they knew it was going to happen. That's why they hired people like me. I didn't know it was going to happen. Wow. And so the third day I was there, the Nets get in the NBA with Julius Irving on the team. So I sold a lot of tickets. And the catch and Pat would, Pat, you'll appreciate this. This is literally the catch. They put me through a two day training course on how to sell over the telephone, right? How to sell, they had courses about this in the seventies. So I learned a lot of things about operating on the telephone that I still use to this day. The other uh, thing they did was at that point, hockey was way bigger in New York than the Nets were. So people wanted Islander season tickets. So I was allowed, I think I had a quota of four or five customers I could sell to. If they would buy four of the top-priced Nets season tickets, I could sell them two Islander seats in the upper tank behind the goal.
1: Yeah, you call that an incentive program, I think.
2: And I probably sold all five of those packages. I made a lot of money for that time in my life. I made a lot of money for about 10 weeks as a strict commission salesperson. But that was my entree. And I met people that summer who helped me for many many years, two of them. One of them is still involved in sports. My longest running friend in sports, Harvey Green, who has been Never a legendary sure. public relations director, and he's now in an emeritus role at the Miami Dolphins. Harvey was had just finished graduate school that summer. He was working in the office, and the other person I met who became a mentor to me was a fellow named Jim Bukata, and Jim went on to Jim was a, a communications. Man, for the old ABA, where the Nets had come from, he ended up going to work for TWI, the television branch of IMG, Mm -hmm. and was involved in global sports television for years. Passed away, sadly, a few years back. But the point being, connections started when I was 19 years old. Jim Bukata mentored me, connected me with people into my 40s. And that's what a wonderful, what a wonderful man he was. And all of that came from answering a blind ad in Newsday.
1: It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, in you know, a lot of the people who are in, in our audience are in sports management programs yeah. or they're somewhere in their sports career. And I think what's helpful for them is to hear that, uh, you know, a lot of people get their start sort of at the bottom and you didn't really know what was going to happen you didn't really know where you're going to go so what did you sort of what was sort of your first sort of big you know major job and where right. did you went from there when did you get to the big leagues so first job uh, so coming out of college
2: now in my years at notre dame i had done the things that i'm jake you probably did a lot of this stuff on your path too i, I did everything i could uh, and i'm very honest about this uh, and God bless my father. He's upstairs listening now. He used to kick my tail about this and I had to make sure I got about a 3.0 GPA just to keep my dad off my back because he was paying for me to go to college. Um, but I wasn't in college for grades. I wasn't going to graduate school. I knew that I wasn't going to med school or law school and college for me was vocational. It was a voc- It was a really good vocational school, yeah. but I wrote for the student paper. I wrote for the student magazine. I was a manager. For the first two years i was a manager on the on the sideline for the rudy game the actual i knew rudy the actual <laughs> wow I mean, we could go off
1: on that tangent we, probably we could probably do a whole podcast on rudy uh, but we may uh, have rudy. to again the, yeah.
2: the rudy story and the film is probably 90 percent true and i lived it i was there for it so um and, and then i worked in the sports information office um uh, as a student assistant for two years, while all this while doing the radio as well, so I was I was working my tail off to pursue this for a living. So coming out of college now, I have all this experience. But hockey's what I have a real tape for, and I'd met hockey people. So I sent tapes out, cassette tapes back in those days, to small town radio stations. Um, I really, you know, television was was tough back then. We didn't have a lot of TV, and I didn't have TV tape. Uh, we didn't have cable. Ne- there was no cable. There were no regional sports networks. It was just three. Television stations in every town, so that wasn't as much of an option. But I sent to minor league hockey teams, and I eventually got hired in Oklahoma City by the what was the AAA farm team for the Minnesota North Stars of the NHL. And I got that job uh, about a week before graduation, which was the hard part because by that point, all of my friends have already taken their jobs at the big accounting firms, the big banks, my. My girlfriend, who's now my wife of 37 years, had just gotten this huge job with a bank in Chicago, and I'm the idiot sitting there with nothing. Or they're going to
1: graduate school. Or they're going to
2: graduate school, exactly. Med school or law school for those, right, exactly. Um, And so I finally get this minor league hockey job a week before graduation. um, And you quickly learn when you go through this that when you're going to work in the minor leagues, the owner of the team does not care about the broadcast. He could care less. It's got to sell, right? He <laughs> has to make money. So this was the, 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 the Faustian you make that you sell your soul to do all of the things that you don't have. Which comprise 95% of the job. And you do it to accept the 5% that you, the announcer, care about, which is doing the game on the radio. The owner doesn't care because it's not going to make any money off the radio. Mm. You do it because it keeps a certain fan base happy. Um, so I took the job and it was brilliant because I did everything from planning travel to you know, cashing the checks for the per diem, to selling the program, writing the program, selling advertising in the arena, hiring the public address announcer, hiring the anthem singers if we could, going to Wendy's before every home game in the drive-through lane to buy 15 Wendy's burgers, and that was our press row food. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff. That's a great spread, and and you did all of that. I mean, I. And of course, did all the press releases and the old school PR stuff that is, again, now conditioned old school um, and was the player liaison, was the coach liaison with the owner, did all of those things for $7,000 a year and thought it was great. I thought it was That's fabulous, great. but it was a great training. And, and the story that I do tell a lot, to, we, we were generally a bus league. We had one airplane flight. And it was to Salt Lake City. That was the only flight in the league. So you went to Salt Lake three times a year and played twice, you know, which is a standard. Minor league baseball used to do that. When you, like, yeah. If you go to Hawaii from the coastline, you went out and played like seven games, right? Sure. So we, when we go to Salt Lake, we play twice. So we finished our season that year in Salt Lake. And we were, it was a six-team league, four make the playoffs. We missed the playoffs by a point. So we're back in a, in a hotel that still exists in Salt Lake City across the street from where the Salt Palace used to stand, The Salt Palace is now a convention center. So we're back there and now the game ends. We lose the playoff spot by a point. We have to stay overnight to fly a commercial Braniff Airlines flight back to Oklahoma City the next morning. And about one o'clock in the morning, I get a call in my room from the hotel manager. You need to come down here because I'm the point person for the team. And I go down and the the hotel manager walks me out in the big street right outside the hotel. There's a television laying in the street smashed. Well, it turned out our goalie had had a little too much to um, have that night after the game because he was disappointed that he had let in a couple of goals and we didn't make the playoffs. And so he ripped the television off the swivel stand and kind of tossed it. So we were not allowed to leave the hotel. Thankfully, I had a, a check or two that the team allowed me to to have for these occasions. I had to write a check to the hotel for the TV. It's fantastic. <laughs> and then I went back and told the owner. and I said, you know, you call the North Stars, the, the pair team. They can take it out of his paycheck. You know, but I, I can't get I can't leave until we I had to pay the hotel. And I'm by the way, I'm 20. I just turned 21 when I'm dealing with all this stuff. So I had to drive the bus home one night from Kansas City because we had a busie that had a prostate problem. In 1979, we didn't know what prostate problems were. He had to stop to urinate every hour. <laughs> that lasted about three stops before the captain of the team is chewing me out on the bus. And we can't have
1: this. This is great. So yeah, you can't are, make this stuff up. Really yeah. Stories. yeah. See, but to so, see, there's some guys that do this for a long time, but Ted, you know, Ted sort of part, despite all this stuff, Ted hung in there. And what was your first sort of, when did you sort of feel like you got your first big break? I mean, what yeah. what, what was it? So the, and, and Pat's, Pat, you're a hundred percent right as always.
2: And and I freely admit this, Jake, my blessing was I, I did a year in Oklahoma City. I really, being a kid that grew up in New York, I did not enjoy Oklahoma City the people were very friendly but the city was not not agreeable with me so I tried to leave and I got a job the second year in Cincinnati in the same league but a much better it was a major league city and uh, unfortunately our team uh, didn't it was, financially it was a mess the, the whole plan we were playing in a major league arena that still stands with minor league prices and and, and it just It was major league cost. That's what I'm trying to say. Major league cost, minor league revenue. So that equation didn't work. We folded. I went back to New York. I was out of work. And this is the first big break I got. It was, again, my father was great at kicking me in the butt. You know, as fathers, he was a Depression-era kid, self-made. So he was really good about prodding me. He said, why don't you call Charlie Finley? And it's an honestly-got-true story. This would have been January of 1980. And he said, why don't you call Charlie Finley? Come on, dad, what am I going to call Charlie Finley for him? 22 years old, I'm an unemployed minor league bum. He was, Just call him. What do you have to lose? I did. I picked up the phone, found his, he had an office in Chicago that was listed in the phone book. I called him. His receptionist put me through. I talked to him <laughs> and I stammered my way through a five minute, probably very feeble sales pitch about me. And then I just wanted a job. I'd love it. And he said, well, you know, I'm, we're not sure what's going to happen. you will call me back. Because at the time, he was trying to sell the team. Mm-hmm. And it turned out now calls through to 2 through 10 that I called back, I don't get through. Them. He took the first one just to find out who I was. Well, then I had a smart idea of my own. And thank God I had this idea. I don't know how. But I called the man I worked for at Notre Dame, the longtime sports information director. His name Roger Valdeseri, The same man that had gotten me the hockey job when I was a junior. So I called Roger and I knew one thing. Charlie Finley was officed in Chicago, but his farm was in LaPorte, Indiana, which is halfway between Chicago and South Bend. Charlie was a Notre Dame football fan. He would come to at least one game a year when I was in school. Huh. So I knew that he was a Notre Dame fan. So I called my old boss, Roger. I said, Roger, do you know Finley? He goes, Yeah, I do. I said, Look, I'm trying to get through. Would you just call him and tell him I'm not a, you know, slobbering drooling fool that actually you know me that i can walk and talk at the same time Roger did the next two days later i called Charlie Finley back i got through now Finley says stay in touch with me i may have something you know but i don't right now it's probably March by now March means you're in spring training right so again it turned out Charlie thought he had the team sold he thought he had it sold to a guy in Denver and the team was literally Apparently, two moving vans ready to it's leave for To
1: Marvin Davis, right? right?
2: Marvin Davis, That's right. But as I found out later, they had two um, training. They had two moving vans ready to go in Arizona. One was bringing the team to Oakland. The other was taking them to Denver. Well, the deal falls through. Charlie's got to go to Oakland. He starts the season. As a result, he starts with no radio station. So now, the, the end of this quick story is it's end of April, and I'm in Chicago visiting again, who's going to be my wife, who's working in Chicago. And I decided to go to a pay phone on a Friday afternoon and just take another shot. And I call Charlie Finley's office and he answers the phone and he has a, a sound a little bit like a Mr. Magoo. He goes, oh, where are you? <laughs> so I told him where I was. I was in the loop in Chicago. It was probably a 10-minute walk from his office. Oh, come up here. Come over here this afternoon. I, I want to see you. Well, I'm dressed like not very well, because I wasn't planning on this. I went to his office, dressed as I was, went up, and I sat in his office. They walked me to his desk. And he's, his office literally is the receptionist of him. That's all mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And I sat there and explained to myself again, Mr. Finley, you know, I would love to just have a job. And he goes, well, you know, I got these two radio guys, but uh, you come back here on Monday morning and come back here Monday morning at, at, at 10 o'clock, and, and I'll, uh, I'll have something for you. You got to be kidding me. So I leave. I go back. My wife to be is now happy to talk to me because I'm going to get a job with a major league baseball team. So I go back at 10 o'clock Monday morning. And the first thing he says to me, didn't I tell you 11 o'clock? And of course now I've got a suit on. Well, I sat at his desk from 10 AM to 5 PM and did not move. I think I had one glass of water. And in those seven hours, he talked to me for probably a total of 10 minutes. And he was on the phone with everybody from Commissioner Bowie Kuhn to Billy Martin, whom he had just hired as a manager, to his traveling secretary, still there, the great Mickey Morbido, to insurance people that he was still doing business with. And much of it is showing off. I learned after a while, he was showing off to me. And every so often, he'd talk to me for 60 seconds in between a call, and then something else would happen. Well, finally, by the end of all this, Finley says, I need somebody to be my director of promotions. And I again summoned up whatever smarts I literally had in a 22 year old head. And I said, Mr. Finley, I will do anything you ask. I just want to be a broadcaster. Can I do something on your radio? And I, I expected that if I got anything at all, it'd be do a pregame show, right? Interview a guy before the game or maybe do the postgame thing in the locker or something. I didn't care. I would do it for a season. He looked around and he goes, Well, you know, we got these two guys. And well, how about if you do an inning? An inning, a play-by-play, like the third inning. So after I picked myself up off the floor, I said, Mr. Finley, that would be awesome. I accept right now. And he goes, but you're not traveling. You just do the home games. I'm not paying for you to travel. (laughs) And so I had a job. I did promotions and group sales. And I was doing the third inning of every home game on radio. Now, the season had already started, and Pat, you remember, because you worked for the Giants, they got off to a great start. They did. Billy Martin had, had energized this team. They had great starting pitching, and that's why Charlie decided to do all this. He was doing an in-season deal with the radio station, and I later found out the reason that he hired me was he was being sued by the Oakland Coliseum Authority for violating his lease. He was, he was obliged to properly promote <laughs> his team And so Charlie thought defending the lawsuit, it might be a good idea to have somebody who was a director of promotions on his, and that's literally the reason why I was hired. And he actually did a really classy thing. He asked me, what were you making in your last job? And I told him, and I later discovered I made a mistake. I told him the truth. I should have exaggerated (laughs) because he paid paid me exactly what I'd been making in Cincinnati, which was actually a fair dollar Mm -hmm. for someone of 22 years old. But if I had, if I had tacked on an extra you know, a couple of thousand dollars, he to match that. So he treated me like that. And I went home within a week. I flew to San Francisco for the first time and went over and worked. And I spent four months working in the ace front office and doing major league baseball, you know, and I had no connection. I had no reason to be around Billy Martin. But literally, Charlie told me his marching orders, which he repeated to me multiple times. You can do any promotion you want. I don't care what you do. Just don't spend any money. <laughs> and I'm not—that's like an exact quote. Just don't spend any money. <laughs> so I was a promotions director, Pat. No with money. A budget
1: of zero. How many times you have that? Well, <laughs> your creativity sort of gets tested. So you're—you know—you do that. So the A's—the A's were your first big league, big league club, mm-hmm. and you did that for what? A couple of years? No, four months. Oh, four, four months. Four months. <laughs> what a stint. May first,
2: May first through Charlie sold the team mm. because he was being—he was in the process of getting divorced. And he understood how much the divorce was going to cost him. So he sold the team. Finally, the Haas family stepped forward near the end of that 1980 season. A fellow named Cornell Meyer. I'm sure you know, Pat. was huge at the time with Kaiser, which was based in Oakland. Cornell was the civic leader that stepped up to try to find some way to do this and keep this team in Oakland. And to the great credit of the Haas family, they stepped up and did. So the uh, the end of the story real quickly, which, again, would take another podcast, was... The weekend of the sales consummation, Lee McPhail, the president of the American League at the time, came out here, and Lee McPhail came out to make damn sure Charlie signed the papers because baseball wanted him gone. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. (laughs) So on a Sunday, and I was probably yeah, I think it was a Sunday. uh, I got called three different times into Charlie Finley's private box during the game. Second inning, fifth inning, and seventh innings. And I, I won't waste your time here by telling you all the details because it's a great banquet story. But at the end of each of those visits, I was fired. Charlie fired me in the second inning and the fifth inning and the seventh <laughs> inning. And I'm not exaggerating this. And at the end of the third fire, Charlie had a, a retired Oakland policeman named Sarge. And Sarge was kind of Charlie's, quote, bodyguard. when he Sarge was the guy that kept coming down to find Mr. Finley wants to see And the third time, I actually was dumb enough to think he might have had regrets about firing me twice in front of Lee McPhail, and he might change his mind. Well, of course, that was foolish of me. He fired me a third time. And, of course, I thought he was serious. Now, Carl Finley, was Charlie's cousin, who ran the front office, and Carl Finley was an incredibly kind, wonderful gentleman to me. Incredible carlo was waiting in the hallway outside charlie's box when i walk out after the third firing the seventh inning and he says me just be in at nine o'clock tomorrow morning
0: Mm
2: -hmm. well come on he's fired me three just be here at nine o'clock tomorrow morning so i show up at nine o'clock in the morning and about nine ten the phone rings it's for me and it's charlie so what are we going to do we got this day we got to put on for billy what are we going to do Carl knew Charlie was showing off for Lee McPhail. He was showing off to Lee McPhail, how he could handle what he considered in you know, incompetence or whatever. And Carl knew it. And so the end of that story has becomes, I, I stayed about two more weeks. The Haas family was taking over. I wasn't going to be able to stay and do any radio for the Haas family. They were hiring two hall of Famers, Bill King and Lon Simmons. And at the same time, I was offered a chance to go to work for the Minnesota North stars in the NHL. Hmm. They knew me from my year in Oklahoma city and they had a sales and promotion job in the front office that included some work on the radio network, not play by play, but some work on the radio network. And I, shoot, I'm going, I took that job and, and Roy Eisenhart, I spoke and Roy was great about it. He totally got it. Um, and he, it was, it was, but I way back to my boss from Notre Dame, Roger Valdeseri, calling Charlie Finley. If that doesn't happen, I don't get through to Charlie and I never get that job
1: amazing it's amazing and you know one thing you got to say about charlie finley was with all of the all of those you know histrionics that he was i mean he actually his team actually did win the world championship three years in a row and he actually won i think won five division championships in a row with sort of a bargain basement you know talk about you know a bootstrap organization that was that was charlie Oh, he was and the last year that I the year that I worked there, the last season of Charlie,
2: I mean, it was an absurdity. We had no receptionist. You walk into the office of the Coliseum and the, the front desk was empty and there was a sign with a push-button phone, please dial zero for operator. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next the last, I was the last employee Charlie ever hired. The next to last employee was Walt Jockney, who went on to have a long career as a GM in baseball. Walter was hired as the scouting director. And we had no scouts. No scouts. The entire scouting that year was done off of the Major League Baseball Central Scouting Bureau that would, you know, in the old school printers would print out these voluminous reports in Walt's office. Um, It it was just – I mean, I was told – I had to sit there. Pat would appreciate this. I had to talk Wayne Gross. Wayne Gross was a third baseman for the A's that year. I spent probably 30 minutes in the clubhouse on a Friday night pleading with Wayne Gross to be the A's representative in the cow milking contest the next afternoon, which was a Finley tradition. Charlie did that back to his Kansas City days. He literally had a cow milking contest on the field. And the A's, by this point, these guys who had been around for a couple of years were tired of it. They wanted no part of it. And I begged, and Wayne Gross finally did it. He finally did it. But that's the stuff. Because he couldn't spend any money,
1: so I I need a guy to milk the cow. Come on, Wayne. You got to help me. (laughs) So, Ted, so, so I'm going to take you through. So, you know, North Stars and then, but if you kind of look th- through all the stuff that you've done, I mean, you've done big league baseball, basketball, football, the Olympics. I mean, we could do a whole thing on the mm-hmm. Olympics. And I think one of the things that you really made your mark with was tennis. And I have to ask you, you worked with maybe one of the great characters of all time. Um, Do you have, could you have like a quick John McEnroe story? I mean, he was your broadcast partner for how many years? A long time.
2: Yeah, John, uh, we started together uh, part-time. He worked in 1992 with me. He was still playing, but he was in the process of retiring and then full-time in 1993. And we worked together. uh, Actually, this will be the first year, unless something changes, this will be the first year since 93 that I don't do any tennis with John. Wow. Yeah, just through television stuff but uh but we've been personal friends for a long time our families know each other and it, it, he has been extraordinarily loyal so i'll tell you two quick stories about john because we could do this for another hour but a first quick story early on first or second year that i'm working with him and when we started together john didn't he just knew i was some guy that was up in the booth um, didn't know me quickly found out we we're only a year apart in age we both are from queens we're both left-handed. Um, And I think he understood that I knew what I was doing to a degree and we just clicked. And it's one of those inexplicable things. We all have these in life with people we know, right? People we uh, work with, befriend, whatever, something just clicks. Well, with Mac and I, that happened. We just, we got along. And uh, John in the booth though, was still a player and he was very certain about things and the way he wanted things done. So this was, one of the first years we're at the U.S. Open at the old Louis Armstrong Stadium on the nighttime show for USA Network, which in the tennis world in the 90s, that was huge. It was primetime tennis. It was appointment viewing. It was big. And John wasn't happy with the way certain things were going. We get to a commercial break and he takes off his headset in the booth and he slams it down on the floor as if it was his tennis racket, huh. as if he had just been screwed on a line call in his mind. And he slammed his, well, he slammed the headset down. And now he's stomping and steaming and his uh, point is, I'm not going on. I'm, this is not, I'm not. I'm not going to go on. Now, we have a 90 second break here, okay? So this is happening in 90 seconds of real time. So I watched this for about 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and again, something inside of me clicked, and I just said, John, I said, there's about 75 people that work downstairs, meeting our production team and in our truck, etc. All of their jobs rely on us being ready to go when they say go. Good for you. And, you know, he was still pissed at me, but he picked up his headset. And I'm condensing the story again, but that's what happened. He was mad at me, but he picked up the headset because he understood that what I was saying was right. He still thought he was right with his complaints. But it was, the, and it was probably the first moment I understood where John made the transition from individual player to team player. And that's what television is. Television's a team sport. And John played an individual sport. And he understood in that moment, and now to this, to, to fast forward to this day, John's a brilliant team player and does a
1: great job of that. But at the beginning, that was the moment where he had to figure that out. Well, so what? What's the difference between between broadcasting on television and on radio? I mean, what is aside from the fact that you got pictures on one, and you don't. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of a broadcaster preparing for it and 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 making sure that you do the right things, what's the difference? So. In our world of sports, what I would say, Pat
2: and Jake, is that, you know, there's things you've often heard. Television is about captioning pictures. And I know that's become probably a little cliche, but it's still true. I mean, don't tell Ray Scott was another mentor to me, a great Hall of Fame broadcaster, football broadcaster. And Ray helped me quite a bit. And Ray was the ultimate minimalist. What Pat's what Jake's probably you probably are old enough to have heard Pat Summerall call football. Pat Summerall was mentored by Ray worked with Ray, what the the Pat Summerall style was the Ray Scott style, that's where he got it from. And Ray helped me understand that quite a bit. You know, Don't tell people what they're seeing, add to what they're seeing. Um, And of course, we all broke into television in the era when there was no score bug, right? All of us started doing TV when you didn't immediately put the game on and know what the score was, what the time was, what inning or quarter it is, and who's playing by the way. So sometimes you had to let the you, know, you had to let people know that any sport you had to let people know that. But but I would say the basic concept to answer that question, Pat, is on television it's about the analyst. Radio is still about the play-by-play person. You're the one that has to tell people what, who, how, when, where, all of that stuff. Uh, on television, your job is really you know you have you have basic traffic as I use the phrase to, to navigate. But your job is to really. Make your analyst or analysts, if you have two, mm-hmm. shy. Put the throw you know, BP. I mean, it's a lot of right. I'd call it, you know, putting the ball on the tee. You could be throwing BP, being the center in volleyball, whichever analogy you want to use. That's really your job. And in my
0: lifetime, the best to me at that was Dick Enberg. Ted, did you and have was, did you have separate personalities on TV and radio? All right. were they different based on the, on the yeah. sport on the scenario? No, that's
2: probably a good, um, I, I, Jake. That's a good question. I, I, I don't know the. I would say separate personalities is because that to me would lead down the road that I think any announcer should avoid, which is acting. We're not actors. None of us are actors. Sports is real. It's not. It's. Not, I mean, wrestling is different. Okay. <laughs> I worked in Minnesota. I worked with an advertising agency executive, who became a good friend, and was helped me a great deal in my front office job in Minnesota. Mean Gene Okerlund, oh. the great wrestling announcer. Wow. At the time, Gene was working for an ad. He had his own advertising agency and he was doing wrestling on the side. Well, he was so darn good at it, he became became his full-time. Now, Gene was an actor. When Gene went on wrestling, he was acting, but most of us in real sport, you don't do that. But what I would say, Jake, is that, yeah, you have um, I think depending on the sport, depending on the, the the level of the event, if I'm doing a World Series baseball game, I'm not going to joke and clown around the way I might in a May, you know, May, Wednesday afternoon, just another random baseball game. Um, so I think, I think you measure it that way. There's also certain analysts you work with that don't take to humor, right? And, uh, or I would say maybe a better word would be to just to, to have fun. Because comedy, another thing I've learned in my business from some very, very high level television production people is to always remember comedy is a profession okay I'm a sportscaster I'm not a comedian now some sportscasters have I think Rich Eisen I believe dabbled in stand-up comedy at one point that's different but there are some you know it's class it I think basically was spawned by the sports center era where in the 90s and 2000s sports center anchors thought they all had to be comedians and I'm not a big
1: fan of that I think you know Joe Garagiola wasn't a comedian but I think he you know he had a, uh, a personality yes that that sort of took him beyond being a, a player and a broadcaster and actually he yeah. wound up hosting television shows but joe garagiola was sure. one of the guys that you know it, it, and it was but he was just being himself but his personality don't you think yeah yeah maybe jake that's the right word his personality because ba-
2: and baseball lends itself to more of those uh in new york even though i was not a yankee fan phil rizzuto was basically an exception nobody in new york could get away with what phil did he was a personality. On the air. And he would talk about getting cannolis from fans sent over the river from New Jersey late night at Yankee Stadium and how much he loved that. And then the, the greatest, of course, was Harry Carey. There was nobody. And, and I, I, I tell the story, just, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Nobody could get away with this. When, when I was in college, Harry Carey was doing the Chicago White Sox mm-hmm. games with Jimmy Pearsall. And they, they had a standard little shtick going where every so often Jimmy Pearsall would rant and rave about something that was going on in the game. And Harry would say, ah, Jimmy, you're crazy. And Pearsall would come right back and go, yeah, Harry, and I've got the papers to prove it. Because Jimmy <laughs> Pearsall did Actually, have. He was crazy. He had a little bit of a, you know, a mental <laughs> battle, an uh, illness battle at some point. But Harry Carey literally said this on the air one day, and I heard this. There was a, the Chicago White Sox had a second baseman in Jorge Orta. And it was a day game at the old Comiskey Park. A ball gets popped up in the air in a shallow right field. And Orta, Misses the ball, and Harry is going crazy as he calls it. And he finally turns. He goes, "Jimmy, how can a guy from Mexico lose a <laughs> ball in the sun?" He said that on the air. I heard him say this in South Bend, Indiana. I almost drove off the road. <laughs> how could you possibly say that? And of course, today you would be immediately fired. You'd be, term- fired. You'd yeah, be terminated. In 1977 or whatever year this was, he he slid by. But but the personality. That's what made Harry beloved, was that he was so incredibly unique. And the other sports, I don't think, lend itself to that um, quite as much. You know, Marv Albert became a personality in New York through his voice. He had this incredibly unique nasal New York voice. And Marv was a master at punctuating inflection, accentuating certain
1: words with his pacing, I mean that kind of thing. But when I you heard, heard him, play. you knew it was a big exactly. time event. I mean, you could tell that it was a big time event. I mean, you know, the others like Keith Jackson. I mean, when you oh, heard when you heard Keith Jackson, you said, "Well, okay, this is something that's important. I um, mean, this is an event that's important." And there's other guys that I mean, okay, we, can, we don't, we're not going to get into Howard Cosell, but when you air it, it gave it a sense of importance and a sense of yes. place that y- it wouldn't and happen right. otherwise.
2: And that's right. Pat. Keith Jackson's a great example. He, he he did something that's hard to do. Football's a hard sport to inject your personality, in, but Keith did that mm-hmm. with college football. And I'm working, as you said, that I, I think of a guy I'm working with today who I like a great deal, Bill Walton. And I work with Bill is all personality
0: Character. on
2: basketball. And it engenders, and Jake, I don't know, Jake, do you remember Cosell? Uh, a little bit, yes. A little bit, yeah. So Cosell was the most significant sports broadcasting personality of my childhood, development and all that. But he was the ultimate polarizing figure. There was no middle ground with Howard Cosell. So to a slightly lesser degree, Bill Walton is like that today. I never get a middle ground on Bill Walton. It is zero or 10
1: (laughs) on the scale. So do you feel like you're trying to rein him in? Is that your... Oh, yeah. I mean, because you're actually, you know, you guys are actually, you know, You're broadcasting to the fans to get them to have them follow the game, but how do you how do you how do you bring him back down? No, that's a great Pat. That's exactly. And there's
2: two of us, myself on uh, Pac-12 Network and Dave Pash on ESPN, have the same assignment with Bill, which is to. And my analogy is very simple. I'm driving the car, Bill's in the passenger seat, and every five minutes, Bill is just going to play around with me and he's going to jerk the wheel, and usually he jerks the wheel just enough that we're going to veer onto the shoulder. And that's pretty easy for me to make sure I redirect and get us back on the road. But then every so often, Bill jerks the car really strong. And now we're heading to the ditch and the car can't go in the ditch. And I have to react just as strongly. And Dave does as well on ESPN to make sure that happens. And and trust me when I say this, Bill is an extraordinarily smart guy. Um, I have this Wonderful rhythm with it. We go have dinner virtually after virtually every game we work, and yeah. you can't believe how smart he is. Bill knows what he's doing. Uh, it's entertainment. It's his way to inject personality and entertain what would otherwise be another random basketball game in a sport where every game is on television. When we do games that have significance, Bill is much more attuned to staying
1: with the game. So, so Ted, what's the hardest sport to? broadcast what's what's the one that in in your experience what's the one that really is a test i mean i don't know if you you know get nervous or get afraid or whatever but what's the one that you really have to work at
2: you know that's that's a it's a question that the answer's changed on that one through the years with me pat um and and i've talked to you about this a lot because i worked with you in baseball and i've always thought baseball is the hardest sport to do well um you know, the, the baseball analogy is very simple. You're on the air for three hours. It used to be now it's three and a half or four. And there's about five minutes of action. And you have to make sure people like listening to you welcome you into their lives, be it their car, their backyard, the boat, or their home, three and a half hours, a lot of days over a spring and summer, and not get tired of you when mm-hmm. nothing's happening. And that's a hard thing to do. Uh, Hockey, the mechanics of calling hockey is what I think a lot of announcers would tell you. Uh, I, that was never a problem for me, so I can't answer hockey. To me right now, by far and away, really the hardest sport to call in my job is college football. And that didn't used to be, but it is now. And part of it is, is, is the evolution of college football into a game that's played at a very quick tempo with no huddles, with uh, combined easily over 200 plays in a game uh, with 90 plus players on a team, with double numbers in often case, uh, in stadiums that can be older and press boxes that may not give us a great view, it is a re- an incredible challenge. Now, um, I, 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 part of it is I think is, is college football's College football needs central administration. That's where I'm going. The yeah. NFL obviously provides a central clearinghouse that makes sure are a certain way. Numbers are a certain way. Fields are lined a certain way. Uh, and of course, far fewer. So quite honestly, the NFL is a much easier game to call than college football. And college football needs that central administration, not let individual conferences and then individual schools decide they're going to wear purple uniforms with black numbers. And that's absurd. And that's happening more and more today because the uniform
1: companies like it. Mm -hmm. so Teddy, you you went to, you know, you did the the Olympics and I think this is true, but verify it. Didn't you actually broadcast an Olympic event that the first time you broadcast was the first time you actually saw the event? Yeah. Uh, Probably a couple. The first time I saw it in person, sure. Synchronized swimming,
2: whitewater, uh, whitewater kayaking, uh, biathlon. (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to think of those, those, at least those three come to mind right away Were that I broadcast those at the Olympic Games
0: and I'd never seen them. I've seen, i had seen tapes of them, but never seen the event. Like How'd that? you prepare differently uh, for those than you did the ones you saw over yeah. and over and over again? And, and Jake,
2: that's really good because that's uh, a lesson I think that transfers to any of our jobs and any of our lives, anything, you know, people listening who want to get into sports in any way. The Olympic sports lessons, particularly ones we just talked about, have taught me the ultimate stay in your lane lesson, stay in your lane. If I'm doing, and I was given synchronized swimming at the Sydney Olympics in 2000, while I was there, I was hired to do baseball and I was calling the USA baseball games. Well, in the midst of that, they came and said, we need you to do synchronized swimming. What? And I don't (laughs) worry, we'll make it work for you, et cetera. Okay, fine. So I do it. Well, I'm standing there at the pool the first day and next to me is an Olympic gold medalist in synchronized swimming, prominent synchronized swimmer. She knows the sport inside out. I know nothing. So my job on the air is ultimately to explain how the event, and not to explain, but really to just say, okay, there's going to be three five-minute routines. There's eight countries in the competition. The scoring will happen this way and that's how the medals will be determined. And here's country number two, Sweden, and they'll, they'll perform two Madonnas, whatever. And now I shut up, let (laughs) her go. Tracy Ruiz takes over and does, and she's explaining what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then at the end, when the scores come up she explains how it was judged. And it's a fabulous lesson that most announcers like me are guilty of violating all the time in the ball sports as I call them because we've all played them. And we think we know more than we probably do Mm -hmm. but we're comfortable in our knowledge in those sports. So we sometimes overlap with the analyst and it's the, the stay in your lane thing in the Olympic sports. And even to this day in sports, i have you know diving, uh, short track speed skating that I've done five times in the Olympic games. I had Apollo Ono with me uh, at,
0: in Korea last
2: year and he won eight medals in short track speed skating. So I'm sure as heck not gonna say what's heck. Ha- I, I basically called race and who it is and the, the, the fundamental rules but then, why it's happening, Apollo? You take it and run with it, man. Wow,
1: wow! It's just—it's—it it's, it's it sounds terrifying to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what? What? And you know? What were what some to, of the lessons uh, you learned, you know, along uh, the way from sport to sport to sport, Ted?
2: Yeah, and and, and think, Jake, that, that Pat just touched on it. The great point is that it teaches you to be fearless, and I think that's a fabulous quality to have for any of us. Again, in, in any sports job, and even for an office job, you you. you I think there's a line. You don't want to be reckless, yeah. but you do want to be fearless. And there's a line to walk there. But the fearlessness is a is a healthy thing. So once I got through and actually synchronized swimming was the first time this happened. There was no longer any assignment that anybody could give me that I would be worried about. I was asked to go do the weightlifting Olympic trials. This is uh, in the early 2000s, and I was in New York doing baseball then. Uh, And I got a late call again. Can you fly on Saturday to some place in Missouri and do the weightlifting Olympic trials? Weightlifting. You look at me, I don't know very much about weightlifting. Okay. (laughs) So, but again, I, you know, quick prep, meet my analyst on site that day. Hey, help me uh, understand some fundamentals here for 20 minutes. He gives me the fundamentals. And then I say, man, I'll just tee you up. And that's that's all I do. So uh, again, I, I think, Jake, maybe more to your point, what I've tried to do is take those lessons back into football and basketball and a little bit of baseball and make sure I'm making sure that the analysts are talking about the whys, not me. And uh, and I know I've worked more so in baseball, I think we're probably more victims of that. I've worked with some baseball investors for years who I couldn't believe would sit there with, with an analyst sitting next to them and would tell you. Why this guy messed up on that pitch, or why that was a base running mistake by a player? Instead of asking the analyst, was that a mistake by so and so?
1: Yeah, well, we're all guilty. I mean, yes, they are. say you know pitchers pitchers like to hit, and hitters like to pitch, and uh, and we've got one here in San Francisco, uh, Pablo Sandoval, who who likes to pitch. But <laughs> you know, Ted, Ted, I, I think that um, in our audience again, you've got a lot of people who are who are deciding whether something in this whether it's whether it's sales whether it's broadcasting whether it's some other element of the business is something that they would do what, what would you i mean I, and i know you do this a lot like i do Is you talk to a lot of young people you mm-hmm. sort of mentor them coach them but just you know pretend that that i'm a uh I, i'm sort of an aspiring um uh sports sports person who would like to work in the business what would you say to me what should i do yeah.
2: So I, I I use a lot and some of the things that we have uh, shared. You were a wonderful friend with a guy that gave me a lot of insight about this as well named Bill Campbell. And from Bill, I took something that I've employed. I call it the salt and pepper shaker uh, example because I wind up spending a lot of time talking to young people at little cafes or restaurants or whatever. And I'll take the salt shaker and put it down. I'll say, okay, here's where you are today. And then I put the pepper shaker about a foot away and I say, that's where you're gonna be five years from today. What is it? Where do you wanna be five years from today? And the point being, you need to have a goal. And Bill was very good about talking about that. Have a goal, have a target, something you're striving to do. And I always ask, what's your ideal five years from today? Now, don't tell me you wanna be president. That's that's, that's dream, I'm not Mm. talking about dream, I'm talking about a real goal five years from today. And the other thing, because this to me breeds the fearlessness that I think is essential, the goal can move. You're not locked into the saying, this is the only thing you can do. If, if you six months from now decide that's no longer the goal that appeals to you, move the goal. But my point being that so the pepper shaker is out there, that's your goal five years from today. The salt shaker is today. Every decision you make from today forward should move that salt shaker closer to the pepper shaker. If the decision is going to move the salt shaker backwards, you have to think that probably not the right, right call for me. Sometimes you can go sideways, and I did that a couple of times. Sometimes you make a lateral because you think the short-term lateral move will have a long-term gain. And I did that a couple of times myself, and I think that's okay once or twice. Um, but, but to me, that was my point is move towards a goal. And then, hey, you might get halfway there, and it's, you're not getting there as quickly as you want. Or your personal life changes. You decide to say, I'm going to get married or have a family, or I need to live, you know, I need to live closer to my family and my parents for whatever reason that happens. That may alter your long-term goal, and that's fine, but you can't be, you can't float out there in the ether without something, and as you've often heard, the worst thing. I'm sure, Pat, you've had people come to you and say, listen, I just want to start. I'll do anything. Well, yeah. that's the worst, that's the worst
1: it is. And I, my coaching to them is that if if somebody's willing to do anything, that doesn't help me. Exactly, I mean, exactly. t- tell me, l- let's talk about some of the things that you really would like to try to do specifically and force them to be more specific about it. But somebody who's willing to do anything is that doesn't help me. It right. doesn't help me in where you want to go. So and that's why
2: I go back to the Finley story, the, the best thing I ever did. And again, I can't tell you what prompted me but thank the Lord I did was when I said to Finley Mr. Finley I'll do anything you need but I really want to be a broadcaster and I'd love to have an involvement in the broadcast you had your If I hadn't online. said that I wouldn't I wouldn't have gotten that uh, opportunity
0: absolutely Ted, uh, we, yeah. yeah we want we want to thank you for your time and and uh, I think we could. Pat, we could could absolutely do another two, three, four episodes with Ted. I mean, hours and hours of content. Um, But uh, we we, uh, really appreciate uh, all the insights. And uh, Pat, today, you know, we got to mention, this is our first somewhat live episode on Life in the Front Office, right?
1: It is. And I kind of wish that we had done this down at this little uh, eating and drinking establishment. that as soon as we sign off here, Teddy and I are going to go down there and, and maybe have a couple of adult beverages and something to eat because that's the other thing is that, you know, we're in the fun business. This is the fun business. And, you know, we're not selling life insurance. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're not, um, we're not saving lives. Uh, we're not discovering a cure for any disease. We're actually doing something that's fun and that a lot of people think that it's fun. And, uh, you know, I, I, we all, both of us, also feel very fortunate that we had an opportunity to do it, and, uh, and in Ted's case, do it at the highest level. And uh, I, I, I thank you, my my friend, for uh, for spending some time here. Maybe we'll do it again. Pat. You've been my friend for a long time. And Jake, you know what I call Pat. He's my Irish rabbi.
2: (laughs) When I need spiritual guidance, this is who I go to. And so I prefer to think that we're going out for a little medicine right now. That's how I like to think of it. There you go. Fair enough. There you go. Well, awesome. All right.
0: As as, uh, as we, you know, admire all of the things that you've done throughout your career, I wish you the best of luck with the remaining of it. And uh, looking forward to hearing you on the air.
2: Jake, I look forward to meeting you sometime in person so we can share some medicine, okay?
0: Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, and I appreciate Thank you. everyone for listening to Life in the Front Office.